All right, come on back in. Let's um, let's kind of pick up with this idea. It's <coughs> a little bit of fruit left, a little bit of drink left back there. So grab a refill, and I'm going to try to be a, a good steward of our time. Now, if you're tracking with me, what I'm trying to communicate, whether I'm doing a great job at it or not, is to say we want to be great men. We've always wanted to be great men. What a great man in what a great man is is not necessarily a man of competence only, but a man of character. Man of character. You're inspired by men of character. You always have been. I'm convinced you always will be. That's what really grips you. So in the end, how do we pursue that? We have to be able to address our inner pride that says, I can't and I won't. Or I can't or I won't. We have been baked in a culture that wants us to reject external structures. You've been made that way. Most of you have been baked into this culture where it's like, no, the structure needs to adhere to me. And we have to be able to turn the corner and say, no, worthy structures, I need to adhere to them. I need to learn and grow from them. So I just want to share with you a couple of notes from this next section here on cultures of mediocrity. Do you guys see the note here? The cultivation of cultures of mediocrity. Grab your Bible. I'm now going to test your Bible memorization skills because my first hour was basically void of us going to the Scripture. So let's go to a couple of passages here. Open up your Bible. Go to 1 Corinthians 15. Have you ever thought about it this way? That there are cultures that incentivize and pump out mediocrity. You ever thought about that? There are cultures that can incentivize and pump out mediocrity. I was just telling Brandon, I have a buddy. We were having lunch together at church this past Wednesday. He works for the tax assessor's office. So things like he, he goes and inspects a space, writes down how big it is, and then they use that to calculate your property tax. So he was told by his boss to slow down in his work. You know, he told me, like, I don't know what the exact term is. You know, it's like he could do 10 packets in two hours. And his boss was like, mm, why don't you try doing like two packets per day? You've worked in an environment where actually you're shunned for working a little too hard, harder than the other guys. You know what I'm talking about? So what takes place, as I hope to show you, is that our environments can either promote excellence, greatness, or they can actually detract and hold you back. Look at examples like this in the scripture. 1 Corinthians 15. This is in the context of a local church, the church at Corinth, who is already being told that the resurrection has occurred. Verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Here it is, verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Paul is going to use that as an example of what happens when you allow these people to come into your church and to teach bad doctrine. Don't be surprised if it infects other people. Don't be surprised about that. Bad company corrupts good morals. In 1 Corinthians 5, if you don't mind flipping over there just briefly. This is the passage that talks about sexual immorality defiling the church, and the church at Corinth is tolerating a sexually immoral person to stay there. In this, look at verse 6. In regard to being loving and accepting of this person, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Have you ever thought about that? 
He's using this principle for unleavened bread and saying, even if just a little bit of leaven gets into the bread, the whole lump is now going to be a leavened loaf. He uses that principle to talk about the purity of a local church. If you tolerate impurity, that little bit of toleration will infect everybody else. If you just minimize it with one individual, it's not that big of a deal. They love each other. Then what happens over time is it begins to infect everyone else and others and others and others. Like a little bit of leaven in a loaf. So big picture, imagine that your environment can actually lean you, incline you towards mediocrity. Or your environment can incline you towards greatness and excellence according to God's standard of greatness and excellence. In your notes, let me see if I can point out a couple of environments of mediocrity. Point A says churches of mediocrity. I just read from Corinth. There's, old, there's other passages you could look at. Uh, I would say that Corinth is the worst New Testament church. <laughs> Not the. They're probably like, thanks for the endorsement, Greg. We don't care. One star on Google reviews, honestly. One star on Yelp. Uh, there's immorality, divisiveness. They're arguing over who's, who's aligned with Apollos and Paul. They're rejecting the resurrection. Like Corinth just has its own bag of issues. Uh, you've heard of Laodicea. I mean, that, this is the lukewarm church and one of the seven churches of Revelation, Revelation 3.16. They're lukewarm. They're tepid. There are churches that can be mediocre. There are geographic locations that can be mediocre. When I say these, they hopefully will come obviously to mind. Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? Uh, you don't have to be an Old Testament scholar to know that wasn't a great place to be. <laughs> Think of it, even in modern time, we know that nothing good happens in Vegas. <laughs> right? I praise the Lord I'm not in an industry that has to go to Vegas for their business conferences, as some of you are. Uh, if you're in tech, you know, if you're in certain disciplines, Vegas is the cheap destination where everybody goes for the annual conference. Thankfully, there's not a lot of pastors' conferences in Vegas. <laughs> I don't think there are anyways. I'm not invited to those, thankfully. You know, like, I've driven through Vegas one time, and you know that Vegas isn't known for its uprightness and its morality, its wholesomeness. There are geographic locations that can actually contribute to greater mediocrity. In the Bible, if you turn the page, so you have Sodom and Gomorrah, then you see Crete. The Cretans are said in Titus 1.12 to be lazy and evil. <laughs> Paul is citing a, a, a Crete poet, and he's saying this testimony is true, that they're evil beasts and lazy gluttons. If you're going to make fun of a culture, always cite someone from that culture. There's an internal principle for those of you who are wondering about that. The men of Athens in Acts 17 are very philosophical, but they're missing the very basics. Athens is another culture that was producing philosophy that would take you captive, Colossians 2.5. But it was not Colossians 2.2 or 2.3 where Christ is supreme. I think there are spiritual leaders that are mentioned in the Bible as being mediocre leaders. Eli the judge, he has wicked sons. If you read the first part of 1 Samuel, you're going to see that Samuel is really the honorable son that's in juxtaposition to Eli's wicked sons. If you read about Israel's priests, Malachi 2, you're going to see that the priests of Israel are forsaking the companion of their youth, so God is rejecting them. Caiaphas. Lastly, just as an example, there are families that are producing mediocrity in the Scripture. Joseph's brothers for a season, Aaron's sons, Eli's sons, Absalom. Some of you actually can, you can appeal to this on your own behalf. You had to get out of there. You had to get out of your family. If you were ever going to not give in to illegal activity, drug use, mediocrity, you knew you had to create a little bit of distance between you and your family. It stinks. Some of you know exactly what that's like. 
because there are families that do contribute to mediocrity. But all of those are cultures. All of those are environments, things that are outside of us. So one of the things that I want to show you just briefly before we talk about the character traits of a godly man is the way that a mediocre culture is cultivated. Are you ready? This is at the top of page three. This is how it works. I thought this was fascinating as I was getting ready for our time together. Number one, marginalization of the elite. Hey man, you need to slow down, honestly. The rest of us do one packet a day, you're doing ten. Hey, don't clean that up so fast. We've still got a long time left on our shift. You and I have all worked in an environment like that. You're trying to like not make everyone else mad, but also trying to work as unto the Lord. If you want to torpedo a culture, then what happens is let the elite be marginalized and then let the mediocre become the majority. One guy is doing excellent work and nine guys are just kind of milking the clock. They know how to do just enough to not get in trouble. Now, I am not saying we need to like stress ourselves out. And some of you have been in your work life now for many years and you just know there's a rhythm to find, right? Um, some of you are not trying to make it to a next career position. That's different. It's different from talking about being mediocre and not working unto the Lord and someone that they found the rhythm. There's no next step for them. That is different. But if you want to create a culture of mediocrity, then all you have to do is let the mediocre become the main people that are there. Isn't that fascinating? And then over time, the elite are a threat. You're a threat to us. We don't like you. If this were Survivor, we would vote you off the island. Coconut shell. Flame goes out. Because you make us look bad. So if, if that elite, excellent person is not rewarded, they're not protected, they're not promoted, they're not compensated, you know what happens over time? And, and you, of, of you men who are managers, you know exactly what happens. You lose them. They move on. They go to another organization where they're not going to feel shamed for working so hard. They're going to go to another organization to where they're not now rejected by their co-workers because they're just simply working hard and, and being excellent. So the elite leave and a culture is further plagued with mediocrity. Think of one of the most difficult work environments to break is a work environment where most of your people are just doing just enough to, to get by. It's almost like you have to have a reset. It's almost like you have to have a new team that comes in. You know, one of the fascinating things for me is to study the way that sports teams move from being average to elite. So you, I don't know, has anyone seen the documentary, The Last Dance, kind of the story of the Chicago Bulls, Phil Jackson, and it was the Michael Jordan era. Anyone see that? It was a Netflix thing. And what it documents is Phil Jackson as this kind of like master guru basketball coach who knew that the only way he was going to be able to have an excellent team is by cultivating elite men who could work well together. And then once you've created a culture of an elite status, then that becomes the expectation. So anyone that joins your team, they expect to be elite. They want to be on your team because they're elite. You have to make it over this recruiting hump in order for you to become an elite organization, an elite team. In the context of godly character, it's not quite different. Embed us in a group of men who are mediocre and you're trying to strive to be excellent. Before long, what takes place is you're discouraged. No one's prompting you. You almost feel marginalized because of the ways that you're trying to grow and honoring the Lord in your own character. And these other guys are saying, hey, you just need to cool down, man. Like, slow down. Chill. So godly men in cultures of mediocrity, to your next point, there's basically two options that we are going to have. And then we're going to go to our last section on the character traits. Godly men in cultures of mediocrity. You guys see where I'm at in your notes? Point A. It's possible for us to adhere 
to cultures of mediocrity for godliness. So instead of us going into a culture of, of mediocrity regarding godliness and saying, you know what, this ain't right, we say, oh, this is the way it's supposed to be done? Okay, I am going to now be like a chameleon and adhere to this environment. Or it is possible for us to upend cultures of mediocrity. To upend. I've, I've included in here a passage from Acts chapter 19, which is the story of the conversions taking place in Ephesus. And what happens is after Paul shares the gospel, individuals begin to repent and to turn from their idols and actually physically burn and sacrifice them. One of the things that a godly man can do is promote excellence in their culture. Excellence. That a godly man enters into that culture, and if he's willing to stay there, he changes it. So that's how I want to finish our time. So flip over to the last packet of notes that you have. Let's go to the character traits of a godly man. For those of you that are readers, and there are a few of you that are readers here, I would encourage you to peruse through the next section that I did not cover just now, because the idea is that As godly men, we can change the environment, and we change the environment by being a godly man who's willing to stay in that culture. We stick there, and we watch the way that God works long term. One of the things that I've argued on Transformed, I'm going to do my best to present to you now, is that godly character is the means for you and I being the man that we wanted to be when we were ten. Godly character. So I want to spend the rest of our time going through some of the character traits of a godly man. All right, if you're a manager of other people in here, you're familiar with the idea of a job description. Right? Some of you are like, I haven't seen my job description ever. (laughs) Welcome to small business, everyone. There is no job description. Um, You know, in in a job description, all it's telling us are the expectations of what we're supposed to be like or be doing. Ever thought about it that way? What we're we're supposed to be like or what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, Your job description in an organizational sense, it actually helps you be better at your job. Clarity. I mean, if you want to go above and beyond your job description as you should, great. But you know what above and beyond looks like in the first place. That's your job description. So last year, when I began to think through the Jordan Peterson phenomenon, I began to wonder, what if there's like this Katanji Brown moment for manhood? Um, All right, you guys remember when Supreme Court Justice Katanji Brown was being nominated and the Tennessee senator says, excuse me, I have a question for you. And it's like, okay, here we go. Who knew this was going to be such a difficult question? Can you tell us what a woman is? <laughs> you guys remember that question? <laughs> it was like, yeah, I mean, that's like, hang on, where's my two-year-old? Go answer that question for him, son. But Katanji Brown knew all of the political landmines that she was about to step on if she said, this is what a woman is. So she graciously, though not accurately, punted and say, well, I don't know. I am not a biologist. You guys remember this phenomenon? We were all like, what planet do we live on? Where are we right now? Um, But then I was like, but then the irony of saying I'm not a biologist, it's like, okay, so biology contributes to understanding femininity? Is that what's going on? And so as I began to think this through, I was like, but what what if there's no answer on the man side either? What makes a man a man and not a woman? Like how would you how would you summarize that? What makes a man a man and not a woman? Or in other words, who is God called a man to be? So when you consider that broadly speaking, I would say that first of all the Bible speaks to character as what makes a man a man and not a woman, and then your body. Character first, body second, culture third. What makes a man a man and not a woman actually corresponds more to your attributes and your character than it does the shape that you possess. 
In fact, you're going to see very few things mentioned in Scripture about what a man should be physically. <laughs> Some of us are like Dwayne the Rock Johnson. I don't have to be him anymore. <laughs> I don't have to be six foot three anymore. <laughs> because the Bible doesn't associate your masculinity based off of your body. In fact, there are going to be things God has created a man to be that are obvious. Hair, size, strength, things like that. But starting with the scripture, we see what God has called us to be as men in our character. In our character. Sometimes it's almost easier to buy a gym pass and to try to lift weights to become a man than it is to try to be a man of character. Right? Let me just buy a 4x4 truck. Do some chewing tobacco. <laughs> Men in Santa Clarita drive Priuses, by the way. <laughs> I don't know if that's a thing up in Bakersfield. <laughs> it counts. It counts. You just trust the Lord and do what you have to do. <laughs> well, I can still make fun of you, though, at the end. You just got to know that. <laughs> you deserve it. It's almost easier to do the external things than the internal things. Right? Go to the gym, get a sweet tattoo, buy a truck, buy some chewing tobacco. I could do most of that in the afternoon. But to actually become a man of character, that's quite challenging. That's something that can only be done through the Lord's work in me. Grab your Bible. Let's go over to 2 Peter chapter 1. I think fundamentally speaking... You have to acknowledge a couple of things about character. 2 Peter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His very precious in very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Pause there. Insert Tim Allen grunting. I was told it's a grunt, not a bark, by the way. Er, er. Is that better? <laughs> I'm getting warmer in my grunts. Er, er, er. Brothers, these are believers already who are partakers of the divine nature, verse 3 and 4, recipients of the promises. Make your calling and election sure. You've already been called. You've already been elected. That is fulfilled in you. Christians, pursue this character. When you pursue character, it is an overflow of the transformation that has already happened in your heart. When you're pursuing godly character, it's mobilized by the gospel. It's mobilized by the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. We're not talking about becoming moral men. We're talking about becoming godly men. You see the difference? Moral men will speak the truth out of selfish motivations. They don't want to get in trouble, don't want to go to jail. Godly men speak the truth out of godly motivations. I want to honor the Lord and please Christ in everything that I say. Godly character is only produced in the heart of the Christian. How? The work of the Holy Spirit in your life. When He made you alive as a follower of Jesus, if, if you are a follower of Jesus, the reason why you can have godly character is not because you can work harder, get up earlier, eat kale chips, whatever it is that would be disciplined for you. It's because of the Holy Spirit in your life. And you're called to pursue it. Uh, well, you could just say, well, isn't character just something that I should be? Yes, it is. But here, Colossians 3 you're going to see that character is said to be something you pursue as a Christian. 
pursue godly character as a person who has been redeemed. The Holy Spirit has changed you and saved you. So instead of you saying, well, I'm a Christian, you know, I'll just let the fruit of the Spirit do what they want to do. You have to think something to yourself. I need to make my calling and election sure. I need to practice these things. Verse 5. I need to make every effort to supplement my faith. Godly character. Godly character. So in the end, as a, a follower of Christ, how is it that you and I can be men of Christ, godly men, through the work of the Holy Spirit in our life to produce character traits that we pursue? So now let's distill some of these down. I would say that even in Second Peter 1, that you can be a male or female and you need to grow in self-control, <coughs> steadfastness, knowledge. But what I want to try to show you here is what it means to be a man and not a woman. So I'm going to slide over here to this one. Not that one. This one. Look at that man's man down in the corner there. He just read all those books, by the way. That's why he looks so accomplished right now. <laughs> all right. Uh, you don't have to turn back there, but the First Corinthians 16.13. Act like men. Act like men. Technically, that's written to a mixed congregation. The church at Corinth. Ladies, buy a truck. <laughs> no, that's not what he's saying. Um, what he's saying is that men are bold and men are courageous. So Corinthians... Act courageously. Act like men. You don't have to grow a beard, right? Uh, you don't have to buy a Harley Davidson. You don't have to do those things. But you do have to be courageous to be a man. Uh, consider this as an opposite. Part of the judgment for Judah, when you read Israel, the judgment for Judah is going to be, or when you, I said when you read Israel, when you read Isaiah, the judgment for Judah is going to be that there will be men who act like women. And that doesn't mean they're effeminate, it means that they're cowardly. Alright, it's, it's actually okay to be a lady and not be courageous in certain capacities, right? I mean, are you the designated spider killer in your home? <laughs> right? And you're never like, hey, girl, you should be courageous. Be bold. <laughs> Funny story. My middle son, Finn, over here, Finn Weave, you remember the spider story? He, he had a spider over his bed probably two months ago. He's like, hey, Dad, I can't reach this spider. Can you come get it for me? It was at night. He was getting ready to go to bed. I was like, got this, man. I'm a man. I go in there, and I, as I'm reaching up, you know, you grab a piece of toilet paper. You reach up to grab the spider. That thing, like, jumps. <laughs> it's right over his bed. It jumps at me. I'm like, ah! Lands on his bed, and Finn goes, well, not sleeping there tonight. <laughs> I have no idea what happened to that spider. I'm just thankful you're alive, Finny. We love you. Yeah, we just love about that spider. I know what happened to it. It's okay for a woman to be not bold on certain occasions. But it's not okay for a man to be wimpy, cowardly. You know that. Why do you know that? Because that's the way the Lord has made us. Boldness and courage corresponds to trusting in the Lord and His presence with you. Remember the conquests of Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Why? Why? I'm with you. I'm with you. You can, we were talking over the break about a redefinition of courage. We can redefine courage. You know, you need to have courage to drop out of school. You need to have courage to go do that road trip. Yes, you could try to redefine courage, but yet still in the end, courage is something that we as men are called to be. The antidote, the opposite rather, is going to be men who are cowardly. And in fact, I think Isaiah gives that principle to the men of Judah, that men who are cowardly, who act like women, are unmanly men. A godly man is a man of courage. Now, that may not mean going to war. That may not mean running into a burning building. It may mean that at times, though, that you actually have to work hard when you're tired. 
And I do that because I want to be bold and courageous. It may mean at times that I need to own my mistakes. And I'm courageously going to do so. It may mean that we get to be the disarmor of the hooded villain. Yes, it may mean that. But most often it doesn't mean that. That courage as a character trait is something that God has called us to be. And cowardice is reprehensible. We know that implicitly. So what does it mean to be a man and not a woman? Number one, courage. We see courage. Number two, this is technically number three in your notes. It's purity. Grab your Bible and go over to 1 Timothy with me. Purity. I've wrestled with different ways to say this, but I want to say it in a way that is age appropriate for our younger bros that are here. And I want to remind you of it, though. One of the things that Paul tells directly to Timothy is the family ways to interact in the body of Christ. So I grew up in church. Uh, Has anyone heard of uh, the BBFI, Baptist Bible, Fundamentalist International? I come from a Fundamentalist Baptist church, if that means anything to you. So that meant whenever I wore a hat into the church service, you know what the older gentleman would do? Smack it off my head. Not in the Lord's house, Sonny. (laughs) Yes, sir. Um, We were not allowed to do certain things in the Lord's house. Run, wear a hat. You know, like there was this this great sobriety. The older men in the church where they were the godfathers, you know, my grandpas in the faith. And then I had kind of my dad's age that were my dad's. And then I had my brother's. There is a family dynamic to the church. And there should be. It's a rightful dynamic. And the way that we understand how to interact with each other is partly based off of understanding our families. So we get some of that from this passage. 1 Timothy 5, verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters in all purity. Uh, As a young 30-something-year-old guy, don't you dare be disrespectful to an older man. Encourage him, implore him as you would a father. There's something good to that. And that doesn't make every older man a man of wisdom and valor, but it does mean that you show respect. I'm not against, I'm from the South, I'm not against saying sir to someone that's older than me. And I never want to want that to be a term of derision. It's just, sir, I want to show respect to you. Uh, younger men, treat them as brothers. Older women as sisters. And then younger women as sisters in all purity. And most likely, the in all purity is a reference to either the entire group or exclusively younger women as sisters. It seems to me that the younger women as sisters in this context is what is being modified by in all purity. That you are called, Timothy, to treat younger women as a sister in Christ. And you treat her that way with all purity. How would you treat your sister, your biological sister? That's the way that you should treat a female in the body of Christ. Sometimes this explains the way that men should date Young men, you're thinking of this. Some of you are in those phases now where you're dating ladies. And you're thinking, how do I treat her? I respect her as a sister in Christ. So much so that if we were to break up, we could still be okay because I have been so respectful and so kind the whole time. Think of it that way. Men are called to be men of purity. Purity. And in fact, there are multiple instances where you're going to see a masculine pronoun that is used. For instance, Matthew 5. If any man has looked after a woman with lustful intent, he has committed adultery in his heart. Does that mean that women can't commit immoral acts? No, it doesn't mean that. But it does mean that we see an emphasis on a man being an individual who is pure. Go over to 1 Thessalonians 4 with me. 1 Thessalonians 4. I'll never forget it. I almost karate chopped this guy, but he was a little bit bigger than me, so I didn't do it. (laughs) I was like, eh, he might could take me. I'll never forget, I was meeting with this couple. They were dating, and she felt awful about some of their relationship and the purity of it. 
And he didn't feel awful at all. In fact, he would say things like, you know, we're committed to each other. We love each other. And he had the audacity to say, show me in the Bible where it says, you know, that this is wrong. Show me in the Bible where it says this is wrong. And it was like my jaw hit the floor. I was like, bro, lady, like, how can you date a guy who thinks this way? I can take you to a passage in scripture that tells you explicitly this is wrong. Where did I take them? First Thessalonians four, verse two. You know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. I took him directly to this passage and I said, dude, look like this is directly from the Lord. What you're doing is impure and thus it is sinful. It is against God's will. It overtly says this is God's will for you to be pure. You be pure. Holiness is God's will for us. Let's say it in a negative way. When we are being impure, we are being unmanly. When we are being impure, we are not being who God wants us to be. Chapter verse. This is God's will that we're pure men. Be a man who is radically committed to his purity to honor the Lord. Be a man that makes no compromise, no dismissiveness. This is a big one where dismissiveness catches us. Well, it's just hard. You know, just you never know what's going to come on TV. Shut it down. That's dismissiveness. It's hard to be a single man in this culture. Dismissiveness. Well, you know, like. It's just, you know, like I just have physical needs. Dismissiveness. You have to shut all of that down as a root of your own pride and see like anytime I crack the door for purity, whatever that looks like for us men, we are being dismissive and we are doing the opposite of what God wants us to do. Out of all the character traits, this one is going to be one where you could explicitly go and say, this is God's will that you would be a man who is pure. Think of the ramifications of that. We want to be men that are pure, not only in what we are doing, but what we're thinking about doing. (laughs) You okay with that? (laughs) There can be no inner Bill Clinton in us. (laughs) My older men get that. Technically, technically, I did not have... My younger men, you may not get that one. It was about a president who was kind of like rationalizing his own sinfulness. If you have an inner Bill Clinton, you have to shut him down. Technically. Um, it's true. That's dismissiveness. Think of it this way. Not only what you're doing, but what you're thinking about doing. If you're just saying, well, I don't do all these bad things, I don't look at this bad stuff, but yet your mind is being renewed by filth, then I promise you, based off of the Scripture and the way that you work, it's just a matter of time before that thought becomes an action. You can't brood on impure things all day and expect in no way it will affect your actions. So remember that principle, what you're doing and what you're thinking about doing. I want to be pure. We want to be pure men at the level of our heart and what we're thinking about. Man, if it pops into our mind, we repent of it if it doesn't honor the Lord. He's omniscient. He knows what we're thinking anyways. We repent of it. If we're driving down the road and whammy, it hits us. We repent of it before the Lord. Why? Because it's not just purity of actions, it's purity of heart too. We want to be so pure in heart, Matthew 6, that says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I don't want my impurity of mind to prevent me from being in right relationship with the Lord. So don't just say actions. Say what I'm thinking about doing. Not just what I'm doing, what I'm thinking about doing. I want to be pure in that. If you're not pure in that, you won't be pure in your actions. All right, next one. 
Let's actually turn over to a couple of passages for this one. Let's go to Ephesians 5. You know this one. I know you know this one. Grace Bible is going to teach on this one quite regularly. I want to highlight a couple of things from this, though. So if you're okay with the 1 Timothy 5 passage, then number three, I want to connect the dots to being honorable to women. Part of what makes a man a man and not a woman is that he knows he's not a woman. And he treats a woman with the respect that she is due. In 1 Timothy 5, you treat an older woman as you would a mom. You feel that way? If you stick around the church long enough, you have ladies in the church. It's like, she's my spiritual mom. She gives me a spiritual whack on the head sometimes, and I need it. You have sisters in Christ, and you're treating them with the dignity that they deserve. In Ephesians 5, there's something that's mentioned that's, I think, actually pretty noteworthy here in this context. Of course, uh, husbands love your wives, verse 25. We know that. But now look at verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. One of the things that a husband is said to do is to treat his wife like he would his own body. Refresh it, rest it, moisturize it, feed it. That you care for your wife in such a copious way that you're honoring her and you're honoring her preferences. So as a man who is married, and many of you are men who are married here today, for you to be manly, you have to treat your wife in the way that God has called you to treat her. You have to treat her like your own body. In fact, if you don't live with her in an understanding way, then you are acting in an unmanly way, in an ungodly way. When we talk about honoring women, I want you to see that God has made a man such that he is to protect and provide for women in ways that are appropriate to his relationship. Being an honorable man means something like this. All right, back to our daydream. Are you ready for it? Daydream, hooded figure comes in, knife comes out, and we as a man are standing there with two ladies. What do we do? We push the ladies toward them. We take off running. We can run faster. Ah! Good luck, ladies. I'm not married to you anyways. I'm not your brother. Inwardly, you know something's wrong with that because you actually have an obligation to care for women in a way that corresponds to your relationship with them. So when you see something taking place, you expect a man to step up. Why is that? Well, biblically, because we as men are called to protect and provide for women in a way that corresponds to our relationship with them. Our wife, like our body. Other women, like mothers and sisters. That you're even going to see that a man that doesn't provide for his own household, 1 Timothy 5.8, is worse than an unbeliever. You have masculine terminology that is used in each of those. So what's the point? Well, summarily, we would say you act honorably to women. Unmanly men are dishonorable to women. Right? There's the whole cat call thing. Uh-uh. Not around us. You're not going to do that. Hey, let me get that door for you, little lady. You probably can't open it yourself. <laughs> not around us. No one's talking down to women around us. If you're disrespectful to my mom and my sister, we got problems. <laughs> right? Do you ever feel that way? I make fun of my sister. You don't get to make fun of my sister. <laughs> That's my job. <laughs> Think of it this way. I, I am encouraging you to have this idea that, yes, she's not my wife. She's not my sister. But when I am around another lady, I'm going to honor her and treat her with the respect that she is due. So when you see that, that lady, whether she's single or not, we don't know, but she's pushing a stroller, carrying multiple grocery bags, you as a man should say, let me help her. I'm going to ask if she will allow me to help her take the bags to the car, open the door for her. I have yet to have, and, and I live in L.A. County, just to be clear, I have yet to have a lady say, I can open my own door, thank you very much. 
I'm sure there's a feminist lady out there that wants to open her own door, no doubt. But I have yet to have a lady, when I open the door for her, say, you close that door in my face right now. I don't know if you've had that experience or not. I'm sure there's someone out there that has. God has called us to treat our sisters as sisters. God has called us to treat older women in the faith as mothers. God has called us to treat our wives as our own body. You want to see an unmanly man? It's a man who's being dishonorable to women. Oof. Let that get your blood boiling just a little bit. Alright, so what do we have so far? What are the character traits of what it means to be a man and not a woman? Courageous, pure, honorable to women. Next page. Takes initiative. Takes initiative. When we think about taking initiative, remember that the headship of Adam existed before Genesis 3. The headship of Adam existed. We know that we're called mankind, not womankind. We know that because God actually asks, where are you, Adam? And Adam is the one that responds in Genesis 3. We know that Adam is going to be the one who sins, and Eve is the one who is deceived. So we know that part of the sin of the garden is not just the rebellion against God's Word, but it is Adam's failure to take initiative. His wife technically ate the fruit first, if you're following a chronology of timeline. What was Adam guilty of being a passive man? Being a passive man. Part of the results of the fall are that we would be men who are passive and we don't take ownership for our responsibilities. That stinks. Man, hear me on this one. And this is my, my practitioner side of things. I can exasperate my wife just as much by being an angry man as I can by being a passive man. Sometimes it's almost easier whenever you're yelling because you know exactly what the problem is. But when you're just a passive, laissez-faire, vanilla dude, it actually really hurts. And it hurts. We are called to be men who take initiative and demonstrate ownership. Let me see if I can define passivity just for a second. And I'm referring to point A here in your notes. Think of this from the parable that is mentioned. There are those men that know what to do and don't do it. So they're being passive. Or there are those men that don't know what to do and are not doing it. They need to grow in understanding. They need to grow in learning how to be a better communicator, how to resolve conflict, how to work harder. So men are proactive. Young men, think of it this way. Some of you are like, I ain't married, Greg. Okay, I know you're not married. Thank you for that reminder. But if you're a passive single dude, you'll be a passive married dude. When you guys walk down the aisle, you don't become something you're not. Bum, bum, ba, bum. I'm now proactive. Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> Some of you bros got to hear that. You guys got to think about it. If you're a lame single dude, you're going to be a lame married dude. And your poor wife's going to be stuck with you. We want you dudes to be men of excellence. You guys are the future. And we're pumped about the future because of some of you. But you need to hear that right now, who you are, and some of you are in late teens, right now, who you are is who you will be when you get married. So you boys rise up. You become the men that God's called you to be, and we want to support you in doing that. But you got to hear it. If you're a lame single dude, you're going to be a lame married dude. And in particular, if you're a passive single guy, you're going to be a passive married guy. I will never forget the time when I was going to do premarital. I was meeting with the couple, and she had to drive to his house, wake him up to get him ready for pre. She sat outside in the living room, waiting on him to get married or to get ready for premarital. I was like, when I saw him, I was like, bro, that's not funny. That's not funny to me. You should be the one that is going to her house to pick her up to get ready to come see. A man's man is a proactive man. He knows what God wants him to do, and he is, through the help of Christ and the Holy Spirit, doing it. He takes initiative. All right, uh, next character trait. Gentleness, or being gentle. You know, gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. Sometimes it's not one that we like to talk about. If you're a first responder in here, you come from an athletic background, can we just admit that we're not naturally good at gentleness? Right? 
Some of us, we work in a very harsh environment, nine to five. It's just difficult. Like the gentle man gets steamrolled in some of our environments. But in the context of your personal relationships, you are called to be a man of gentleness. There is a a meekness about you. It's not the same thing as humility, but it's closely connected. Look at the passages that you have here. Okay, first of all, fruit of the Spirit for everyone, but in particular for men. Don't provoke your children to anger. That is said exclusively to the Father. Don't be a man who incites anger from your children. Don't be harsh with your wives, Colossians 3.21. An elder, a spiritual leader, cannot be violent or a brawler, some translations will say. Sometimes we as men can mistake masculinity for over-machoized versions of masculinity. Think of the MMA fighter. Think of the guy that is a brawler. And we think like, nobody messes with that guy. Well, no, that's not what it means to be a man. As a man, we are called to be men who are gentle. We're not provoking our wives. You can't be a spiritual leader if you're known as being violent. You're disqualified. Why? Because you're an exemplar. And if you're a violent man, you're going to create an environment of violent men at the church that you're a part of. Gentleness is something that some of us men really have to cultivate. If you're being candid, you really have to cultivate it. When I got out of the army, one of my first plans, at the suggestion of my wife, one of my first plans (laughs) um, was to grow in being gentle. I had cultivated a mindset like this, and some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, it sucked for me, so it's going to suck for you. That's the military way of doing it. It was hard for me, so it's going to be hard for you. And what happens over time is you become Mr. Judgy Judgerton. Mr. Has No Compassion for Anybody. Your leg could fall off in front of this guy and he's like, well, at least you got the other one. Let's go. (laughs) Ah, my leg. I am not a man who naturally oozes with gentleness and compassion. And some of you are not either. And you have to see that God has actually called us to be men who are meek and gentle. And if you're sensing out of all of these character traits that this is one you're not good at, then maybe you need to do what I have to do, which is to be intentional about being gentle. Being gentle. God forbid we are harsh men, violent men, men that provoke our kids to anger. God hasn't called us to be milk toast. Okay? God doesn't call us to be Johnny Milk Toast. This like kind of like soft, effeminate dude. God hasn't called us to that. But don't see the MMA fighter as the epitome of masculinity. Don't see a brawler. God has not called us to that. He's called us to be gentle men. Men who are meek and gentle in our interactions. So you can be a strong, godly man and be gentle. Don't forget that. Now I want to show you the first Timothy passage. All right. Last character trait. You see it on the board. Hard working. We as men are unmanly if we are not working hard. We as men are unmanly. Verse 8 says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Part of the emphasis on why we would say a man should be a provider is is the way God has made us. Most of you enjoy being a provider. You love that. You enjoy the satisfaction that comes from that. But it is also a biblical responsibility. You are a provider of the necessities of your home or your family. Now that may mean that you don't get to go on a Mediterranean vacation. Right? In all fairness. God has not called me to provide for the Mediterranean vacations of my family. They can go on one if they can afford it. God bless them. God has called me to help provide for my home, and God has called you to be a provider. As a single man, you are working hard. You are learning how to have a work ethic that honors the Lord. 2 Thessalonians 3.12 says, You eat your own bread. You work for it, and you eat it. Something that is unmanly is a man who cannot provide for himself. 
able-bodied man who's lazy. Why? Because God's called us to be men who work hard. God's called us to not only be a man who provides for me, but provides for my family as well. Well, if you understand that, God has given you the strength to use for the good of others. Hard-working men are men who work for the Lord, first of all, and a paycheck, second of all, not the inverse. If you work for a paycheck, first of all, you'll actually be a worse worker. You know that, right? Over time, you begin to think something like, well, I ain't getting paid to do that, so I ain't going to do it. Lame. We have to think, Lord, I'm doing this because this is an act of worship to you, and I want to maintain a moderate level of compensation in the process. But number one, it's for you. I want to be a hardworking man for the glory of God, Colossians 3.23. We work as unto the Lord. Men, we are all tired. (laughs) We are all busy. We all could have a couple of more hours of sleep. But we know part of the joy of what it means to be a man is God has called us to work hard. And young men, part of what we're trying to help teach you dudes is that you would be hard workers. Hard workers. So there are times when it's almost easier to just hand you a $20 bill and say, yeah, here, just buy it. But we want to teach you boys how to work. And as you young men learn how to work, you are becoming a man who honors the Lord. So don't think we're trying to hold out on you. We're not trying to hold out on you. We're trying to teach you dudes how to work. And as you guys learn how to work, you'll be a provider for your own families, for yourself, and then for others. I wish that we could just bless the socks off of you sometimes, but we're really not helping you if we do that. We're trying to teach you boys how to work hard. So, last thoughts for you. I would encourage you in some way, especially for those of you who are men who are, you're in the throes of this, you're trying to cultivate this, you're trying to help teach other dudes this type of stuff. I would encourage you in some way to distill down the character traits of a man and to be able to say, if I'm to answer the question, what is a man, what makes a man a man and not a woman? These are the things. These are the things. Courageous, pure, honorable to women, takes initiative, gentle, hardworking. That we're going to say this is what it means to be a man and not a woman in that way. Maybe you're going to memorize them. Maybe you're going to teach them to your boys. Maybe you're going to disciple men's groups through them. Whatever you're going to do, you're going to see these as an opportunity to help teach other dudes. This is what it means to be a man and not a woman. So let's go full circle. Full circle. Who inspires us? These dudes. These are the guys that. These are the guys we always wanted to be. Hardworking, pure, courageous. Yeah, ten-year-old Greg. I wanted to be Jackie Chan for a little while. Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> Jumping off of stuff, flipping over things. I had my Bruce Lee era where I was karate chopping random objects around the house. <laughs> Who do I want to be at the end of the day? Who do you want to be? We want to be something like this portrait of masculinity. Who does God call you to be this portrait of masculinity? When you and I are doing this as men, who cares what Hollywood is pumping into us? Who cares? No one's going to notice. Do you know who the men of influence and inspiration will be? These men. These men. If you're this type of man, you will be the man that inspires others to do the same. Hollywood can funnel whatever they want into us, and we won't care about it. Read whatever book you want, and it's not going to matter. These are the men that will be our leaders. And some of you are that man. Some of you are. You're reminded today of the reasons why you do the things that you do. Some of you maybe see just a little pocket to grow in, and I would say, grow in that pocket for sure. Don't be dismissive, whatever that is. But the last thing that I would say to you is managers require, this is on page three, managers require, but leaders inspire. What do I mean by that? We are never going to shame a generation of men into being godly men. You boys don't know what it's like. Back in my day, (laughs) you boys got it so easy. Okay, sir, I'll rise to the occasion. (laughs) we're never going to shame this next generation into being godly men of excellence that's never going to work you and I hate it when men do that to us don't we how are we going to help duplicate ourselves we're going to inspire these men and we're going to say follow me as I follow Christ we're not in the shame game we're not shaming anyone to man up we're going to say 
I want to be a man who honors the Lord in every capacity of my life, and I invite you to follow me as I follow Christ. Men, that is the next generation. Some of you that are sitting here, you have dads or uncles or friends. You look to them as they're following Christ. Some of us who are men, and I would say even men of excellence, what do you need to do? You need to invite someone else to follow you in that process. Don't shame them. Don't shame them. No man's going to rise up by being shamed. Say, there's something better for you. What is it? It's God's plans for your life. That's what we want to be. We want to be men of excellence. All right. I got to be done. So I'm going to pray for you dudes. I'm going to stick around. If there's any questions or implications, Brandon, I'll turn it over to you for any, any final notes that you have. But thank you, men, for allowing me to be here today. I think, and you guys, you guys feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. I think men's ministry is perhaps the most important ministry in a church. Above missions, above new members' classes. Because if you see the Lord work in the men of the church then you're going to see the Lord change a church. You're going to see the Lord bring worthy deacons and elders and disciplers. And so let's pray that God would use your church. Let's pray that God would use my church to help be breeding grounds for men of excellence in a culture that wants it. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And honestly, I am excited to be a man in today's culture. I'm excited for these men to be with me in today's culture. Lord, it's almost like we just get to be normal men and there's something different about us. Lord, would you allow us as men to be inspired by who you have described you want us to be? Help us to be men that are awesome at being a man for your glory. And may we with joy invite other dudes to follow us. Lord, this is what we all want. This is who we want to be. So work that in us, we pray. We pray that not only would we be that man, that we would create cultures of excellence, not mediocrity. May our churches be be breeding grounds for men of excellence that transform workplaces, cities, families, so that in the end, Lord, you get glory. And again, your word is demonstrating as being true and accurate, right and good, altogether lovely, Lord. Exalt yourself in our generation for your namesake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.